Hello, dear audience, and welcome once again to the podcast. For today's program, we have two artists working in sound who have made a career using scientific methodology to interrogate objects sonically. We are talking about the American experimental electronic duo Matmos, who are MC Schmidt and Drew Daniel. Both artists are the main core of the outfit, but they are frequently joined by other musicians and an array of domestic gadgets. Currently, they are based in Baltimore. Daniel is an English professor at John Hopkins University there, but they formed in San Francisco in the 90s, where Schmidt was teaching new genre studies at the San Francisco Art Institute, and Daniel was doing a literature PhD at Berkeley. Over the last two decades, Matmos have gained a reputation as the new masters of music concrete through their conceptual approach and the use of unusual sound sources. The productions are challenging, but also infused with a playful touch of domestic humor and a disregard for genre conventions. They first entered the more mainstream musical consciousness in 2001 through the collaboration for Björk's album Verspatin, and they toured the world with the singer for the next two years. Today, they manage to balance their academic careers with touring some of the most entertaining and unpredictable live shows in electronic music. Matmos were at Unsound to present the staging of Robert Ashley's legendary television opera Perfect Lives, which is a portrait of life in the Dust Bowl of America, told through a fractured lens of the culture itself. We met with Drew and MC the morning after Unsound's infamous karaoke night for what was a really entertaining chat. Excuse our giggling. It was really great to have an insight into the procedures that tied together all the disparate artistic endeavors. I do hope you enjoy it as much as we did. The fact that my father is a surgeon certainly influenced my childhood. There's an empirical dimension to medicine, a treatment works or doesn't work, a medication is right or wrong. Um, I think the, the prerogative of an artist is different in the sense that you're playing with the level of meaning. And so the reception and the emotion of the of, of the audience is is not subject to empirical uh, control past a certain point. I think with us as sound artists, though, there's a material dimension to working with material objects that also feels a lot like a laboratory that you are making you know objects collide in space and you're capturing the waves and different materials have different resonances, create different frequencies, and you're exploring, you know, by breaking something apart or by hitting it or by striking mm -hmm. it, you know, what are its properties? So you could say that there is a, there's something laboratory-like about mm -hmm. a studio. Um, as far as the relation to the experiment and experimental knowledge production, we are terrible scientists. Yeah, we're terrible scientists. <laughs> we're and, we're, li we're liars. And, and, we fabricate and, data. Well, we're making, <laughs> and at least with like the um, with the marriage of true minds with the last album, we were kind of making fun of the idea of experimental science in that 
we over and over were conducting an experiment, mm -hmm. you know, um, these experiments, the Gonsfeld experiments are from parapsychology, which is a sort of mm -hmm. liminal science. It has trap the trappings of, of the empirical, but it's trying to get, it's trying to verify something that is regarded with extreme skepticism mm -hmm. by the scientific community for perfectly understandable reasons. We as artists were setting up an experimental condition of the, the test subjects were always in the same physical location, in the same physical conditions, and repeating something over and over again. You know, that's how knowledge is generated. In our case, though, we weren't really trying to prove or disprove. We were just trying to work with the mm -hmm. results, yeah. you know. Um, there's a good Steve Reich quote. Uh, it, it's all about how you interpret the data. Right, and, and the interpretation part would be where the artistic creative prerogative comes in and sort of sifts data on behalf of desire. Where scientists, I mean, I, I suppose, well, you tell me, scientists have desires. They think something might be true and they mm -hmm. want to prove it, but when the data doesn't prove it, they accept it. They don't like switch it up, when you the, know, yeah, or. The creativity or, stops there. Yeah. And it's like, okay, yeah. move on until yeah. create something else. Right. Uh, but then, yeah, mm -hmm. like there's no room for that piece of data that it's. Yeah. It's, I and mean, actually, there's lots of scientists that say like there should be publications about like the negative mm -hmm. data yeah. that, someone could, <laughs> yeah, that someone could still use and not spend another right, right, million right. years. That's and interesting. Just, hmm. It's incorporated to the to mm -hmm. the knowledge because it's it's in scientific publication is only like positive results. But like yeah, you have like this mm -hmm. kind of data generated <laughs> sitting there yeah. like this is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> do you uh, make a hypothesis as a starting point for your projects like? as you would do in a scientific method? Or this, yeah. or, or this approach, as research approach, is just more like an artistic statement? Or the, or the, or the some, some records, yes, some records, no. Like, I think the piano was sort of a hypothesis that we tested and it failed. <coughs> yeah. The piano I mean, drag, you know? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, that one was a spectacular failure. Like, literally a spectacular <laughs> failure. I, I theorized. <laughs> <laughs> That it would sound interesting if we took a piano and put wheels on it and um, if I wired down the sustain pedal and put mics inside it and then we rolled it through the desert. We chained it to a truck. We, <laughs> chained, we chained the piano to a truck that it would go, it would make a sort of like like piano. Like we thought it would shake and start to resonate. When in fact the result of the experiment was the sound of a covered wagon or a wooden, well, like the only sound was It looked amazing, but it sounded really it boring. It sounded stupid, horrible, <laughs> boring, and then the piano fell over. It tore the entire skin off the piano and left just the, um, the harp, mm -hmm. you know, the iron harp or whatever it's made out of. That must have looked... Look it yeah, was it really cool. cool. Yeah, and we so, were in this beautiful yeah. desert in the salt flats where they where they test like drag racing mm -hmm. and and stuff. So it's a really dramatic landscape, and it looked like a surrealist painting, you know, of this like destroyed mm -hmm. piano in the desert. I think now it would look like you know, oh, Burning Man. You know, it would look banal. <laughs> but um, we aren't visual. The problem is we aren't visual artists. So you know, we did shoot a video, but it's about the sound, and so for us. I guess you could say that you have a hypothesis and then you test it by acting on it, but then the way that we sift the data is not to prove or verify, but to please or 
if we, if it's boring, we just don't work with it. And I think having that honesty to present the failed project. I mean, it might be useful for artists or for scientists mm -hmm. to know, like, well, how do you deal with failure? Like, how do you how do you push off from it? You know, mm -hmm. because it's a hidden side. People only want to talk about success, and that has to do with sort of ego and and, and on, on the other hand, the previous day. I had this piano laying in the driveway of the house where we had been screwing the wheels mm -hmm. on. And I was like, oh, I guess I should, I don't know, maybe I can make some weird sounds or get some cool video stuff. And I had the video camera that I had borrowed from the school I worked at. And I shot a bunch of stuff inside the piano. We've been, we've played that piece a hundred times that's made out of that video, which is beautiful. and. In the long run, I'd say made the entire bad experiment worthwhile because it generated this piece that we could use. So, you know, I mean, I suppose this sort of thing happens in, in pharmacological science. You're trying for one thing and it turns out you cured the common cold instead. Yeah, you tweak like, some molecule. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, no, it does, and sometimes like big projects start like with a yeah hypothesis and an endpoint, but then you have like you discover something like really interesting, and then yeah. all of a sudden mm -hmm. just just change. Well, that's like well, mainly in academia where you're more free to uh -huh. to up your projects, but like in in, in industry, it's like well, yeah, more like, yeah, it's <laughs> driven by yeah, if you, like, you, academia, academia, you need a patent at the mm, end of it and some money. Or academic is more creative in mm -hmm. in that way. Or can be. Can, yeah. On the other hand, there are, there are like funding structure disasters in art too. I guess I'd just go ahead and say this. We were in a dance piece one time that all the funding had been done beforehand. The shows were booked. We were gonna play before the piece ever existed. And it wasn't very and good. And it was a disaster. The, once we all got together in the same room, we hated each other. The music was terrible. Like the, the direct, the dance was bad. The whole thing was terrible. But we had all, there was all the money was already there. And then we had to go on fucking tour <laughs> and present this yeah. Dumb so work to all these people, and we're just like, oh, I think God. we're used to the idea that big money can distort science because it leads to this sort of commodification where you need to produce a product that you can sell to people. But the same thing can actually happen, I think, with the sort of arts council grant funding world of mm -hmm. art as well. That if you learn how to talk a good game about what your work is about, you can appeal to the funding structure, and there's no vitality within the work mm -hmm. it just exists to tick a box of like oh we had a work about this community or that kind of person and um you know that's what i do like about a kind of underground is that you know in the music world if you make a record and people really respond to it then you go on tour because there's actually desire it's led by desire i don't see the relevance to science though i guess i just talked about music sorry <laughs> No, no, <laughs> Is there an underground guerrilla science world? I mean, Drugs. maybe. Yeah. Drugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. That's right. Tweaking molecules. Pharmacology. Yeah. And, um, and for example, do you use like this kind of the same approach when you experiment more with like with music genres like in, in the West or even like in Perfect Lives, just like uh, folk music or uh, mm -hmm. modern opera music? I mean... I think the word experimental is a very slippery word because it tends to be 
used to justify or valorize the unpopular. Like, and it's not clear to me why the experimental should be the unpopular. Um, if experimental means I don't know what I'm doing and I'm going to try and see what works, that sounds like, well, really, that's just problem solving, you know, which everybody does. Is it experimental if I try to make a salsa record because I don't know anything about salsa? Maybe, but if it sounds like salsa, is it experimental? You see what I yeah, mean? Yeah, that yeah. We, we that kind of think, we think experimental means dissonant or harsh mm -hmm. or, or improvised in some way. Yeah, I mean, I, I often say when we, when we talk about this, like, we don't present the results of our experiment if the results are bad. <laughs> you know, and that's the difference between, I mean, you know, like, uh, and I suspect this is the, not, oh, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're a very risky arts viewer, you go to things that are experimental without knowing what the end will be. When I, like a... Free improvisation. Sure, I mean, I guess that's like the most... But then again, at this point, after 50 years of free improvisation, is free improvisation really an experiment? I mean, often you just see like cliche after cliche after cliche woven together in new ways. But, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like I think of a, I am sitting in a room. That's that an Alvin Lucier piece that we all know, or whatever, of that but that is popularly known because it's a cool experiment. You and know, it if worked. it hadn't, and it it well, it yeah, it worked. Would we all know about it if it was boring? <laughs> no, no. So was it? Yeah, is that experimental music? Yeah, it's hard, I think, to stand outside of a word that you rely on every day and estrange it, and really ask yourself. You know, we are not experimental in the sense that we make pop music, like we edit the results to be in the direction that we want to take them. But there's, there are certainly experimental and hypothetical um, uh, moments in the generation of the work. I mean, the Ultimate Care 2 is an example, right? There's the, can we make a whole album out of a washing machine? You know, maybe, I don't know, let's find out, let's try. And part of playing a washing machine for months and really listening to a washing machine for months on end is trying to get at every, every expressive little squeak and dribble and splat that it contains. And part of touring with a washing machine is dealing with the material limits of what a machine can and can't do, under what conditions does it work, what makes it break down, when is it happy or unhappy. Um, yeah, I mean, that, so in a weird way we are... When we play this washing machine live, it is an experiment in that it may not work, <laughs> but there is this intense financial pressure to like, well, you're going to put on a show. Yeah, but it could break down at any moment and, and we'd be really embarrassed. We paid for ads telling people that you would pay, you would play a washing machine live. There was a, yeah, and we, we lived that like in between the hammer and the anvil because uh, when we started doing this the, our first show in Berlin at Berghain which was you know oh, wow. like a big deal <laughs> it was not working like the washing machine was there I flew it from the United States we plugged it in and it went da 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 and just oh. died. It kept, it kept blowing it the power. It kept blowing the power. And the and current is different. Mm -hmm. And so even though we had a transformer to step down from 220 to 110 mm -hmm. which is US power 
the current itself made is the machine 50, run is slower. Is 50 hertz? So it was 60 hertz versus 50 so hertz, so the whole show was slower. The whole, All the music was slow. Like a, because a, a set that took 40 minutes was 50 minutes. You it, know? It's supposed to go, ja, 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 ja. And, we, and once we got it run, uh, running at all, it was like, ja, ja, ja. <laughs> we're like, oh my God, the, you know, all the pieces that are based on the speed of the washing machine were now like a dub reggae, like instead of, uh, yeah. yeah, instead of footwork. And well, this brings me to another question that I had is like, why um, um, a washing machine? And not like, I don't know, uh, we were thinking before a dishwasher, which is like, <laughs> like, something I particular think... or just a... Well, we don't have a dishwasher that works in our house, actually. <laughs> so honestly, the answer is completely empirical and just sort of, you know, the everyday. I could give all the, I mean, you know, washing machines in, okay, so this is sort of about the United States because your, the, the uh, products here are different. Uh, washing machines in the United States are notoriously loud. Uh, most of them, you can open yeah. the thing and mm -hmm. wa you know, like watch it do Top its loader. thing. Uh, they're vi you know they're violent. <laughs> they're you know they're really old, clunky. We still use these wasteful, clunky machines. We're washing machine. You know, there's we're right now. There's mm -hmm. I'm washing the clothes. European washing machines, yeah. I think it's, European washing machines are better in that they're more ecological mm -hmm. about water use, they're quieter, but for that very reason, they're not nearly as exciting and dramatic as the American washing machines, which have a kind of narrative arc built into them and are sonically rich. Yeah, it takes mm -hmm. a, the, the cycle is about the same length as a music set. It's like 45 minutes to do a full load. So it feels like putting no on a record. Wants, you know, the, 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 these washing machines would be like a, you know, an opera, <laughs> a really boring opera. Like they take forever. It takes like three hours to do the laundry. It's nuts, and it barely makes any sound. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it has has this um, washing machine just become a, a character, like something else. Well, Ultimate Care too is our washing machine, and it's the source of all of our sounds. And every time we've played this music live, we've played it with our ultimate care too and so it's really become um not just about washing machines in general but specifically this whirlpool model which is a discontinued model from the early 90s you know so it's a sort of gr grunge era washing mm -hmm. machine it um it is a character yeah it something, is a particular something like instrument. people I have now played other Ultimate Care 2s. <laughs> they are really basically very similar. <laughs> but there are... There are differences. There are differences. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we... Yeah. You do get attached to particular but objects. But no one would ever say that about people. Well, they're basically... The, you know, they're like... Mm, you know, like, really, to an alien... Like, they're all the same. I was imagining it playing every day, taking it with you on tour. Uh -huh. It's just like, it becomes like a completely, uh, like, wasn't like another uh, yeah, relationship. Right. Sure. Yeah. We like, have to like, put, a, put its safety belt on in yeah, the van. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Take, and, yeah, like, yeah. Well, I, all, I think part of my idea with the washing machine was I already had this with it. I already had mm -hmm. this intense, we moved to Baltimore and I went from being a university professor, mm -hmm. I wasn't a professor, whatever, I was a teacher um, at a school, 
to being his wifey wife. Like I said, he he was the professor, and I was like at home washing the clothes and like keeping the house clean and doing all that stuff. And I developed this like I'm gonna make his shirts super white <laughs> and like and I really got this whole like thing, this '50s you know like house house care person. And I did develop this relationship with it. And I learned all it's like, okay, if I push this and I can lift up the lid and take out the, and do things and so on. And that's certainly part of why. Yeah, well, and washing and cooking and cleaning, I mean, that's physics and chemistry, right? That is yeah. empirical. You don't interpret whether the, the kitchen floor is clean or not, you know, like it, it is. Like, so. Not when you. <laughs> But you think <laughs> like my question afterwards was like how relocating to Baltimore has changed or influenced your your artistic a lot. Ap approaches or practices. But but we're ans answering it really has because you know when we were in the Bay Area, we were surrounded by people working in the computer industry, often for the software companies uh, or computer companies that made our own tools, and that was great because you're aware of the particular engineers who are designing the software, who are creating the tools that you're using. Yeah, we knew people who worked at Apple. We knew people who worked 74, at DigiDesign you know, that makes Pro Tools. We knew people who... So that, that gave us one insight, but it also obscured other ways of working and thinking. And so to move from a very rich city to a very poor city, and in Baltimore, you know, the underground is mostly like kids in their 20s. There's no jobs in Baltimore. There's a lot of people on food stamps. There's a lot of people dumpster diving. There's a lot of people who are making instruments out of stuff from the... the, the um... It is actually... I, I, I only have one correct. It is not just kids in their 20s. That, that was one of the things that got me was I was like, whoa, these three kids in their 20s are playing with a 65-year-old man. There, was, there are older people worked into that which which was cool and usually in the bay area it was like all old people or all young people it's it's a smaller poorer scene and people are doing what they can with what they have and they were not embarrassed that well we we made this realization after i don't know a few months there that we had seen many many shows and we went Oh my God, we haven't seen anyone play with a laptop. Or a guitar. Anyone. Or a guitar. And they we'd were... seen a bunch of crazy shows and hadn't even thought about but it. But they're all soldering together um, modular synths mm -hmm. out of things okay. that they find or, or weird kits their own making stuff. instruments. So it was a much more um, hands-on, people had a much more hands-on and personal relationship to the tools that they were using and there was less money and so there was more i think of a necessity in finding new ways to work and the forms that resulted were very different too um so it was really healthy to just kind of step away from also not oriented around bars it was not about like drinking music it was a, they were social occasions, like all the shows we saw were at houses, warehouses, or, warehouses yeah. or uh, you know, DIY living space. rooms, like everyone was just doing it. And I realized like, this is why we make music, is to sit around the fire, you know, at night and have something to do, you know, to tell stories mm -hmm. in whatever form. 
Yeah, it was sort of like moving to a village, you know, like a sort of primitive village. But it's also Except it wasn't primitive at all. But you, well, I, I had this new realization mm-hmm. of what, why we do what we do. And yeah, like it's like big, big cities, like you be so detached from this. Yeah, that make yeah. More, more like child, even child, childhood feelings. But yeah, like, you can you become don't... convinced that the reason we do this is for money, <laughs> and it's a shit way to make money. Like it's a horror, you know, like. 99 out of 100 people never make any money on it, but that isn't why it's done. Mm-hmm. It's done to reinterpret each other's stories and uh, yeah. I, I think that the, um, the thing we hadn't realized was the extent to which funding and infrastructure can seem neutral because it can seem like it's there to let everyone express themselves. But in fact, it becomes a kind of barrier to certain sorts of communication and it levels down what's regionally specific in favor of a delivery system for whoever's on tour with a booking agent of a certain level. And when you took away the infrastructure, people had to get creative in a direct way. And we now see it, you know, like our friends in the DIY scene that try to tour Europe don't get a Paris gig because aside from Instant Chaviré, there's nowhere that is truly DIY in Paris. Why? Because of money. And it's the same with something like Manhattan. Like, mm-hmm. if you didn't have the stone, you wouldn't have a place where avant-garde music can be played to 50 or 60 people because the obligation to pay rent in Manhattan, the rent is so high that you need to sell X amount of alcohol, X amount of tickets, which means things can only be at a certain level. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people... Which then changes, of course, the kind of music because you must be making the kind of music that allows people to continue to buy alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, there's sort of inconvenient art that is not tethered to the production of money. It might be the same, and I think it has relevance to science when we think about scientific discoveries that might uh, destroy um, industries, right? Like, the what's the film about so, the... Like, mm, electric cars. Yeah, you know, like if somebody <laughs> creates some new... If somebody has a breakthrough with energy... And find some way, you know, I don't know, I saw a story today about um, a Mexican scientist who's found a way to turn urine into electricity, right? So if somebody develops some way to suddenly create a new revenue stream that destroys another, you know, earth-destroying form, like, that's going to be a problem. I hope that there's a similar thing in aesthetics, that people have some kind of formal breakthrough that maybe, you know transforms what it is that counts as music or Mm -hmm. what it is that counts as literature. Um, I don't know. I don't mean to sing the like neoliberal let's disrupt everything (laughs) mantra because I think that's pretty corny and often uh, a shell game. But it's, I guess it's simply the case that when you're really passionate about something and obsessed, you tend to not really do it for the money but for the fact that it gives you this deep feeling of formal satisfaction to kind of pursue you know an intuition and to honor it mm-hmm. cool. how do you cope with creative desperation or frustration <laughs> not well we fight a lot oh well, sure. I, it's true that i i rarely have any troubles finding something new to do uh-huh. i don't you know especially doing what we do you know i'm just like oh yeah. Oh. Oh, you know, like literally anything yeah, yeah, yeah. like is generative I mean, and once you start examining it it opens, you know, it, it 
like everything just opens up uh, sort of endlessly. Um, yeah. just between each other, oh, we have lots of conflict. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. ego is a, is a problem. And the last one, as like yep. as an unsound theme this year, is um, dislocation. Yeah. So what would be an image of dislocation for you? Well, to me, thinking about dislocation with respect to Robert Ashley's Perfect Lives, it makes a lot of sense because Perfect Lives wants to do two things at the same time. It wants to be very strongly situated in the Corn Belt in the American Midwest in a certain landscape of flatness and a certain feeling of stuckness. And yet, its medium, television, is all about the jarring dislocation of the montage, of the cut, of television's editing language where place is always shifting. Um, and art allows you to inhabit that kind of a paradox of being at once like entirely situated and entirely free. Um, so I think the theme of dislocation is certainly like woven into the DNA of what Robert Ashley's Perfect Lives was trying to, to, to express. She's standing in the doorway of her mother's house, the doorway to the back porch. The backyard is the south. Behind her, the great northern constellation rises in the majesty of its architecture. Well, maybe that's a little too much. Let's just say the contradictions are behind her. And in this backyard, God, this set of circumstances that is indescribable with our geometry. A picnic of sorts. A celebration of the changing of the light. And we glide through that, that chaos, facing her, facing her, watching her, studying her, studying her, not circling her, remember, circling but not circling her. She is circling. We are circling. We are circling. Now she is on the left edge, caught still still in her counting of those three decades, silently. She is so beautiful. A a quote, pre-industrial, unquote, equation. God, this is, this is sentimental. Thank you for listening to us. Hope you join again for the next one. Till then.